Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. With the intense fighting paused and hopefully over, is there any hope for real peace between the Palestinians and Israelis? Let's get to the bottom line. About 30 years ago, a Norwegian power couple had a crazy notion of basically deciding on their own to bring together Palestinian and Israeli officials to make a peace deal in Oslo. There were slow, formal negotiations already going on, but they decided to do their own thing, and they actually pulled it off. Back then, talking face-to-face -face was not only blasphemous, it was illegal, and America was against it. So everything was done in secret. And despite the mistrust, the frustration, and the walkouts, in the end, the historic Oslo Accords were signed in 1993 with much fanfare. At the time, many people around the world thought that the deal would lead to a sustainable peace after decades of conflict. But as we saw earlier this month, the two sides are nowhere near an end to the violence and heartbreak of so many killed and living in fear. And the Oslo deal, which was supposed to be a temporary fix, leading to a permanent deal, has expired. Today, we're looking at that deal from two angles. One is the lasting impact of Oslo on the Palestinians and Israelis for good and not so good. And the other is the high drama of the secret talks themselves and the personal stories of the characters involved. We're joined by Bartlett Shear, one of America's most prolific theater and opera directors. He's the director of the new movie called Oslo, which started as a play in New York written by J.T. Rogers a few years ago. It's based on the true story of Palestinian-Israeli negotiations in the Norwegian capital, and it comes out this week. And Diana Butu, a Palestinian lawyer who served as legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team back when there used to be negotiations with Israel based on the Oslo Accords. And finally, Daniel Levy, a former advisor and negotiator for the Israeli government who was the lead Israeli author of the Geneva Accord, which was supposed to start where the Oslo Accords ended. He's now president of the U.S. Middle East Project. It's a real honor and privilege to have all of you on board. But let me start with the movie that's coming out. Bartlett, this conflict has been raging for decades, and I don't know about your, your you know, timing and other things, but you've got the story of Oslo, how it came together, coming out right now amidst uh, real horror and tension yet again in Israel-Palestine. What drew you to this story, and what drew you to sort of telling it now? Um, well, I actually, uh, I, I live in New York, and I happen to be friends with my, my daughter, um, best friend in second grade, was the daughter of uh, Taya Rod Larson and Mona Yule. And so I would go and sit at soccer matches. And, and these hear, two people are the stars in the movie. Yeah, the two yeah. people in the movie. I would go and sit at soccer matches and hear stories of Middle East peace. And um, from my point of view, it was extraordinary theater in a way and introduced uh, Taya to uh, J.T. Rogers, who wrote the play and the film, and away we went. You know, I don't know if a lot of people know, I mean, general lay people know of Oslo, but when you, when you perform this in New York, in Tel Aviv, in, you know, other places, in London, um, how was it received? Is, is it received as, wow, that was a historic anomaly, but it's really a disappointment because they didn't move forward? Um, well, we, we, didn't, uh, we didn't approach it one way or another as if we were trying to make a point about Oslo working or not working. We were telling a history story, a history play, as you would find in Shakespeare. And we're trying to tell the story of what happens when complete enemies c come into a room and try to resolve their conflicts. And that was the basis. So when we first, when it first came out in 2016, most of the audiences were learning about that, but they were talking about Democrats and Republicans. And when we did it in London, they all they talked about was Brexit. So it was more about how to 
how, what the larger question is of how to get a hugely opposing and hateful forces into a room, and is it possible for them to resolve their differences? Well, let me go to Diana and to Daniel and, and ask them, they, these uh, two great individuals negotiated for their governments in the wake of Oslo. Uh, Diana, let me just ask you, um, what did, did, did Oslo, which was supposed to be the low bar, not the high bar, uh, you know, was it worth the effort back then, or did it set up false hopes? I mean, how do you look at Oslo with regard to where we are today and the role that you, people like you and Daniel tried to move us forward, but, but ultimately we haven't moved that far forward? For Palestinians, the issue of Oslo is not a documentary film. It's actually a horror movie. And the reason that it's a horror movie is because this wasn't just a question of setting a bar, but it has actually changed the course of history for Palestinians to the negative. What it meant was that it wasn't just a question of people coming into a room and sitting down and resolving differences, as Bartlett had said, but it ignored and masked the fact that Palestinians have been living under a very brutal military occupation and have been denied their freedom. And so the whole formulation of Oslo recreated history or spun history on its head and spun law on its head, such that Palestinians are now forced to negotiate with their oppressor, with their occupier, rather than getting the world to put pressure on Israel to end that military occupation. And the lasting effects of it are we still feel to, to today. Everything from the dividing up of the land into various areas to the establishment of the Palestinian Authority that isn't its own independent government, to the continued uh, settlement expansion that we see to this very day, to the settler takeovers that we are even experiencing now, 27 years later, to uh, the fact that we have a Palestinian Authority that is has, in effect, served as Israel's security subcontractor. These are the lasting mm. effects for Palestinians of the of the Oslo Accords. It's not they didn't produce anything positive. It actually produced way to the it produced everything negative. Thank you for that, Daniel. I'd love to get your take because you you negotiated, you wrote the deal that was supposed to come uh, after Oslo, and we saw the political rug in Israel primarily be ripped right from beneath it um, as, as politics in Israel moved in a very different direction. I'm just interested not only in how you see that moment before, but as you look forward and just listening to Diana basically saying, hey, this is a horror story, not a documentary, how, how do you see, what are the pieces are that can be moved around that you think could maybe move us into you know, somewhat uh, a better direction? Yeah, thanks, Steve. I, I mean, I think that pulling of the rug was partly for the very reasons Deanna just outlined for us. And whatever the intentionalities of the players at the time that, that I imagine the movie goes into, uh, in retrospect, what Deanna has described for us is the lived reality of Palestinians. And unfortunately, the flip side of that on the Israeli side was... Oslo kind of sent the signal you could get peace on the cheap. You could get this without really engaging with deoccupation, with Palestinian rights, with international law. So in a way, the challenge today is to unlearn Oslo, 
Mm. It's not about reviving Oslo. It's how do we definitively draw a line under that? And it's important to remember that Oslo was supposed to lead to a five-year period. There was a five-year time horizon by which all the final status issues, as we call them, all the things, Jerusalem, settlements, borders, statehood, refugees, crucially, had to be resolved. That's coming up to 30 years ago. If anything has passed its expiry date by a quarter of a century, it probably stinks to high heaven. And that's the reality of Oslo today, unfortunately. Bart, when you, when you made this film, one of the things that really struck me um, uh, were that you, you brought in uh, real Palestinian actors and performers, real Israeli uh, actors and performers. You could sort of see and feel the tension uh, between them as they negotiated this, as they were living, you know, essentially what, what, what Diana and Daniel were just talking about as they saw all of this. But I guess the other element that really intrigued me about the film was that it was just such a weird sideshow that everybody needed in that moment. And I'm wondering, and I, and, and I sort of say, you know, the waffles and the, you know, breakdown, and because everybody needed something to happen in that moment. And I'm just interested in your insight about this. As you look at the conflict today, do you think there's any prospect of another story out there? Maybe I know it's not your, your field, but wondering whether uh, uh, side shots like this um, are possible amidst real horror. My sense of what Oslo is in the story we're telling is that it was meant to be the beginning of a process mm. which was thwarted almost as soon as it started. Uh, so the larger idea of getting people into a room to talk is good. But there are two things about Oslo. One is the, the principle of getting people in a room to make changes is incredibly valid no matter how you look at it. But the real difference is great leadership. Mm. Are there people among the leadership who are willing to make the kinds of sacrifices that are necessary for real peace? And without that ingredient, as well as the Oslo, the idea of Oslo, there's no, there's, it's not going to work. So that's where it, it's not just one side or the other, and we don't try to argue that in the film. It's, it's, there's a huge, huge human rights issue and huge question that has to be addressed right now. And we're only telling a history story. We're not pretending <clears throat> to say something specific about now, except that there was at least a glimmer of an effort to make a change. Well, let me, let me ask you, one of the, the people in the film that intrigued me, the, 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 the characters that was being played was Yossi Balin, an Israeli politician who kind of kept this secret from his boss for quite a while, Daniel Levy. Uh, uh, Daniel's here. Daniel worked at the right hand uh, uh, of Yossi Balin. Uh, Daniel, are, are there any Yossi Balins um, brewing in the Israeli political system today? Diana, are there any uh, uh, Palestinian leaders? I mean, we haven't had elections for, you know, over a decade. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas just delayed the elections again. Um, are, there, are there any stars rising that would, that would give us an opportunity to say, well, we've got a chance for a reset because they're different people. But, Daniel, are there any Yossi Balans? Well, of course, individuals and leadership matters. There are no Yossi Balans is the short answer. But the longer answer is those things also tend to be contingent. Under circumstances of zero accountability for Israel mm. and maximum impunity for Israel, circumstances guaranteed, unfortunately, by American policy, international policy, but in particular American policy, under those circumstances, 
Yossi Balins, others are unlikely to emerge. Hmm. And the crucial thing here is remember that those folks come into a room, and I think that the Palestinian side did not necessarily represent what it was supposed to represent or play its hand strongly, and the Israeli side could have been more forward-leaning, more courageous, but crucially, they come into a room against a backdrop of a power relationship. And if we don't understand this in the context of an occupying power and an occupied people, and if we haven't addressed that asymmetry, when Oslo happened, the Bush administration had just done something very unusual vis-a-vis -vis Israel and loan guarantees. Mm. The Gulf War had just sent certain signals to Israel. And most crucially, the Palestinians had been through the first intifada, which Diana can speak to much more than I. In a way, the PLO stole some of the clothes of that intifada. But crucial here is, does the powerful party have a reason, an incentive structure to drive towards compromise? And right now, Israel does not have, unfortunately, because of the impunity and indulgence it is accorded. Well, Diana, I'd love to hear what you think is brewing in the Palestinian political system. But listening to Daniel, it, it seems to me that that is the rationale then on the Palestinian side for violence to basically create costs that become hard for Israel to, to, to accept and, and to force uh, action. Am I, am I wrong? Look, when it comes to, again, on this issue of leadership, we have to understand that this is a one-way occupation. It's not, I'm not occupying Tel Aviv. I'm not yeah. occupying Israel. It's the Israelis who are occupying Palestinian territory. And that's why it's so imperative to stop getting out of this mindset that somehow there needs to be two equal parties or that there are two parties. It's one party. It's one party that's doing the occupying and another party that's on the receiving end of that occupation. Yeah. And, and so if we're talking about lack of leadership, the lack of leadership comes from the fact that there is no Israeli leader that is willing to end its military rule. And there's no international leader that's willing to force Israel to end its military rule. And so when you have this situation and you have an, a framework in which Palestinians are, are left defenseless, left uh, with, with Israel taking over their, their land, taking over their lives, of course people are going to go out and defend themselves. And this is why it's so important for us to really make sure that we understand this context. This isn't about getting two people into a room and shaking hands and then uh, throwing away old, old, uh, old, um, old anger, etc. Mm. This is about an ongoing military occupation, the denial of freedom, and it's a one-way occupation that Israel could easily undo if it took a decision, a political decision to do that. But it's never taken that political decision. And sadly, the international community has never uh, taken that decision either. It's abdicated its responsibility and somehow turned this into a both sidesism. There well, aren't two sides. There is one side. I want to come back to Bart in a moment. But what you just said is that, that there's you know, a lot of negligence and dereliction uh, internationally. And let me just ask you about the Biden administration that has come in, succeeded the Trump administration, succeeded Jared Kushner's work uh, on the Abraham Accords and others. And you know, Daniel Levy and I have known each other for decades. Um, and, and I've always wondered when the moment would occur when Israel, when Israel Palestine issues were less of, of, a, of, of strategic consequence to America. They may be of moral consequence, but when you see other Arab states now normalizing with Israel with this problem not solved, Diana, um, 
does that mean that this is going to essentially be, you know, a, a permanent ulcer that gets unresolved? No, I don't think so. Look, we've seen that with the Trump administration, they tried to sweep Palestine under the rug. They tried to do away with it. Uh, they made sure that Arab governments ended up normalizing with Israel. But let's be clear, these are Arab governments. These are not the Arab people. Hmm. And we still see around the world, as we saw with with uh, the recent bombing campaign that Israel carried out against uh, against the Gaza Strip, and the and by the way, in the shootings that were happening in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, that we saw that there are millions of, of supporters around the world pushing for Palestinian to be free and pushing for Palestinian liberation. So they may try to think that they can sweep it under the rug, but of course this simply continues to raise its head. I think that what we're beginning to witness is, as the, in the words of one of my friends, we're beginning to see the cracks in the wall. We're beginning to see those cracks travel up the wall. And it's, I think, just a question of time before we see that international public opinion ends up shifting policy. Daniel, what, what, I mean, you and I have talked about facts on the ground for years, and facts on the ground today are there is a raging conflict. Um, I, I, I talked to Senator Chris Murphy just the other day, and, you know, he admitted that our tools and our leverage in this conflict are, 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 are thinning and getting smaller, not larger. How do you see the facts on the ground? What can be moved? Well, I somewhat dispute the idea that American leverage is thinning. I think American willingness to use its leverage remains as limited as it ever was. I, I think you spoke about the strategic significance to the U.S. I think in that respect, things may well have shifted. I think the strategic significance today is much more the difficulty for a Biden administration seeking to say, hey, America is back, and America is back means we stand up for international law, values, human rights. And yet, this is how we treat the Palestinian situation. This is how we treat Israel's denial of Palestinian rights. I think that's a very bad look. And then there's an internal domestic political moving conversation, something that's shifting, especially inside the Democrat Party. What I want to make clear is you asked about normalization. And here I think something important happened under Trump, which has changed, much hasn't changed. Trump took the normal playbook, which wasn't working, and he said, I'm actually going to accelerate this Israeli sense of impunity and take it to a place where the Israelis actually started telling themselves, we've won. It's just a matter of reading the Palestinians the terms of surrender. Mm. Partly that was the normalization accords, which were never designed, of course, to help the Palestinian situation. What those did was, again, it, it accelerated this trend inside Israel. And what Israel has woken up to, as Diana suggested, in this latest round of fighting, because it's not just about Gaza, it's what happened in East Jerusalem, it's what happened inside Israel itself with the Palestinian citizens of Israel. Protests in the West Bank, Palestinian refugees and others in Jordan coming to the border. The, the attempt to disaggregate and atomize the Palestinians and defeat them has failed. And the failure of the Oslo process means that if we ever circle back to something, and I believe we will, it's just as likely, if not more, to be more of an equal rights struggle about what this one physical space Israel has created looks like 
perhaps a la South Africa, than it is going to be two parties like Oslo negotiating separation. That's a fault line which has shifted. Let me just ask you, Bart, whether in your discussions with Mona, I'm sure, I'm sure you're still speaking with her, does she herself think that was a completely unique moment or does she think that there's a role for players that are outside of the classic formal negotiations camp? Because, you know, the, the, the process has not yielded yeah. much success. I do think that diplomats in general, like, like Mona, uh, are always seeking ways to create other solutions rather than force. But that's the, so that's the thing that they've always spoken to me about. But they were trying to be facilitators of change. They weren't trying to pretend it was up to them to make the change itself. Um, thank you for that. Diana, let me just ask you about the Palestinian side of negotiations for a moment. Um, I'm, I'm sure you work with Cy Barakat, the late Cy Barakat, who died this past year of COVID. Uh, Daniel introduced me to him uh, in uh, Ramallah years ago. And, and I think that the, the question is, is, is there, I, I remember talking to him, he was just sort of seemed exhausted all the time with the Middle East peace business, as he called it, of, of, of this ongoing process that would never have an end. I, you know, as a negotiator looking at the new, new team of folks that are trying to move this forward, do, are, there, are, are there ways to enhance their power in this process? We used to have a quartet. There used to be other nations involved. Is it better, the, you know, should the United States pull back and let other stakeholders come in? What are your thoughts about uh, amping up Palestinian leverage in this process, if that's possible? I think that we need to move away from the two dreaded words, peace process, and instead be focusing on uh, different mechanisms to hold Israel to account, to, to make sure that Israel pays a price for continuing to deny Palestinians their freedom. And this is why what we're seeing now, instead of people who are rushing to get involved in peace process moves, are instead people who are trying to push for boycotts uh, of Israel, divestment from Israel, and economic sanctions to be placed on Israel, as well as to mm. hold Israel legally accountable through the International Criminal Court. I firmly believe that we've tried that route of the peace process, and all that it yielded was a level of both sidesism. Mm. And in fact, rather than both sidesism, it was mostly that Palestinians had to swallow whatever it is that Israel was doing and simply accept it. And we're now not at that stage anymore. We're at a stage now where people are saying, enough is enough. We've lived for generations under Israel's military rule. It's time for us to have our freedom. And if it means pushing for boycotts, divestment, and sanction, that's the route that we're going to be taking. And it's just a question of time before we see that this Palestinian leadership either folds or ends up, um, ends up taking on that same language and pushes for divestment in the same way that the ANC did in South Africa. Daniel, I want to give the last uh, few seconds to you to say if you were to change any of the elements as you look at the real mess, that we're looking at the world as it is right now, not the world we like it to be, what would you change to get us into a different course? What we've been talking about, which is accountability and cost-free occupation on the Israeli side, because the alternative to violence isn't always negotiations. You're not always in a negotiation moment. Mm. Of course, you can negotiate the cessation of hostilities, but sometimes the alternative is nonviolent protest. It's generating, acquiring leverage. It's sanctioning a side that is violating what it should be held to under mm. international law. That's the crucial missing ingredient at this moment, hopefully in another 
period, it will look different. But that's where we're stuck right now. Maximum impunity breeds bad behavior and bad strategy, which is also bad for Israelis, I would argue. Well, fascinating conversation and sobering. I'd like to thank you all for being with us. In Newton, Massachusetts, Diana Butu, former legal advisor to the Palestinian peace negotiations. In London, Daniel Levy, former Israeli government advisor and peace negotiator. And with me here in the studio, Bartlett Shear, the director of Oslo, the feature film which premieres this Saturday, May 29th on HBO. See it. So what's the bottom line? If anyone were to come around today talking about a durable peace where Palestinians and Israelis live as equals in freedom and safety, people would ask them, what are you smoking? But that's exactly the kind of far-out thinking by a few people in Norway that made Oslo happen. Call me weirdly optimistic, but why can't something like that happen again? It was such an out-of-the-blue event at the time, and it came when violence on the ground was raging, and neither side wanted to think about peace or the other side's rights. Sound familiar? I don't know if another Oslo is achievable, but what I do know is that morally, we can't allow the status quo to continue. And that's the bottom line.